Can you hear me? So, good evening, everyone. It's Saturday night again. The teachers are supposed to be off, but (laughs) they're so kind as to join me in here tonight for this Dharma talk. So tonight, last uh, Dharma talk I gave, I talked about uh, the first noble truth of the truth of dukkha. And, you know, my teachers and teacher training teachers tell us that we should talk about what is engaging us at the moment. And what is engaging me at the moment, me at the moment, (laughs) is clinging and craving. So I thought that I would just offer you all some reflections on clinging and craving. And as you know, you're, you know, going deeper and deeper into this retreat. And we know that uh, the noble truth are to be taken in three ways, right? Um, I talked before about conceptual knowledge and intuitive knowledge or intuitive awareness and conceptual knowledge. So the first way we take uh, the Buddha Dharma is theoretically. So I'm going to offer you some uh, theory about what the Buddha said, how things work, how craving is created. Uh, The second way we um, engage with the Buddha Dharma is through practice, which you all are so doing, doing so beautifully. I bow to your practice. I know that many of you are in deep places, in and out of them. And the third one is to realize, to realize the Dhamma. And I know that you are all in that process as well. So, I want to talk about craving and clinging, the second noble truth. This bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cause of suffering. It is that craving, compelling, intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking fresh delight, now here, now there. It is namely the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. Sutta on setting the will of Dhamma in motion. So this was the first place that the Buddha talked about the four ennobling truths. So one can understand the Buddha Dharma as a therapy for desire. Because, you know, in that second noble truth, truth, the Buddha tells us that desire or craving and clinging is the roots of all of our suffering. The Buddha says that the mind that tries to find lasting satisfaction by grasping at objects of desire, including identities, is doomed to dissatisfaction because the very nature of conditioned existence frustrates permanent pleasure. So there's an image, there's, um, there's a lot written in the suttas, as you can imagine, about the second noble truth and about um, clinging and craving. And there's a lot of different images. Um, this image actually isn't in the suttas, but I liked it. The image of a monkey who is outside a cage and there's a banana in the cage. And he's all excited. He really wants that banana. So he puts his hand into the cage. He picks up the banana and he tries to, you know, take the banana out of the, out of the cage. But of course he has it horizontally, horizontally, 
And, you know, he butts up against the structure of the cage. It's a structural problem. You know, and his, his grasping at the object is what is preventing him from getting his needs met. And he has to have a, you know, the monkey has to have an insight into the nature of the structural problem in order to let go. That's very similar to what we're doing here. We're getting a, a much closer look at what the root of our suffering is. Tanha is the type of desire that can never be satisfied. This is what Ajahn Suchito says. However, tanha, meaning thirst, is not a chosen kind of desire. It's a reflex. I thought that was so good, so I'm going to say it again. Tanha, meaning thirst, is not a chosen kind of desire. It's a reflex. It's the desire to pull something in and feed on it. The desire that never... that's never satisfied because it just shifts from one sense base to another, from one emotional need to the next, from one sense of achievement to another goal. It's the desire that comes from a black hole of need, however small and manageable that need is. The Buddha said that regardless of its specific topics, this thirst relates to three channels, sense craving, craving to be something, to unite with an experience, and craving to be nothing or to disassociate from an experience. So it's interesting in my reading on, you know, I did tried to do a lot, a lot of background reading on the, the second noble truth and thirst and desire, and it turns out that this second noble truth really does stand for all of the uh, negative kalesas, all of the um, unwholesome, unskillful habit patterns in the mind. It's thirst, also known as desire, greed, craving. And it manifests itself in various ways depending on the context. So in the context of this retreat, you know, one of the things that um, yogis experience is you experience um, tanha craving as the hindrances. That's how it manifests here. That's one of the way that, ways that it manifests here. So this term thirst also is volition, mental volition and karma. They all um, refer to the same thing. They refer to the desire, the will to be, to exist, to re-exist, to become more and more, to grow more and more, to accumulate more and more. This is the cause of the rising, arising of dukkha. And this is found in the aggregates of mental formation. And I'm going to tell you all about that. <laughs> so you can look for it. So you, with your really blown up sense of perception because of your strong mindfulness, you're going to be able to see this. So according to the Buddha, there are three types of Craving. The first type is for uh, sense craving, or um, it refers to craving for sensuality or sensual pleasures. This is the craving for um, sense objects which provide pleasant feelings um, or craving for sensu- sensory pleasures. Rahu- Rahula says that not only are 
is this first sense of uh, tanhar, a craving, referred to just pleasurable things, you know, pleasurable things associated with the um, sense doors, including the mind sense door. But it's also attachment to ideas and ideals, views, opinions, theories, concepts, and beliefs. So are, you, is it, are any of you struggling with any of those? Have you, do you see any attachment to ideas and ideals, views, opinions, theories, con, uh, conceptualizations, and beliefs? Any of that? According to the Buddha's analysis, all the troubles and strife in the whole world, from our personal um, battles on this cushion or personal uh, dukkha, um, all the way to the great wars between nations and countries, arises out of this selfish thirst. And, um, you know, it's so wonderful about the Buddha Dharma that there's a few theorists who've actually um, used the Buddha, Buddha Dharma to think about how struggle happens on a bigger scale. Um, I'm thinking of two right now. This wonderful environmentalist named uh, Stephanie Kaza. She actually has a book out called... Um, what's her book called? Her book is called... Um, hooked, you know, how, you know, the Buddhist theories on consumerism. And it's a wonderful book on a Buddhist theory of consumerism. And, and it's an edited book. And a lot of our teachers actually have articles in there. And, you know, I was desperately looking for material to do this talk. And who has the first article in that book but Joseph Goldstein? <laughs> and I said, Joseph, you're holding out on me. <laughs> And he said, I don't even remember that I was in that book. <laughs> but he is a social theorist now. <laughs> but anyway, um, Stephanie Kaza and David Lloyd both, who are both two wonderful social theorists, say that these kalesas, this greed, hatred, and delusion, this craving, um, they have wonderful theories about how it manifests on the social level. For example, um, Stephanie Kaza, Dr. Kaza, says that greed, you know, you can think of it as manifesting as capitalism and consumerism. You know, consumerism drives the world. You can think of anger, you know, the root kalesa of anger manifesting as militarism and injustice. You could think of hatred. She's a Zen Buddhist, so I think they have more defilements. I mean, more root poisons. <laughs> well, I mean, in their system. I don't mean in person, I mean in their system. So uh, I think she has, she has uh, six places here. She, so in this system, hatred manifests as things like racism, classism, heterosexism, patriarchy, exclusionism, any type of isms and exclusionism. You know, on the social level, that's how that manifests. Lust manifests as prostitution, you know, entertainment in industries, tourism and business. Uh, this was really interesting, you know, some delusion manifests in our education system and um, in the media, and fear manifests in our medical system and in religion. Um, just briefly, she um, actually also included, you know, just how, con uh, how much of the world's resources are consumed by high, medium, and low resource countries in the world. And as you can imagine, you know, for example, 
you know, the diet of high-resource countries like the United States. You know, we eat things like meat, packaged food, and soft drinks. Middle-income countries, you know, eat grains and clean water. And poor countries, which are, you know, um, at least at least 30 or 40 percent of the world, uh, they, you know, live on insufficient grains and unsafe water. Transportation in here is private cars. In middle-income countries, it's bicycles and buses. And in poor, low-resource countries, it's walking. You know, the average um, income in the United States is probably about $45,000 a year. And in low-income countries, you know, in some countries, it's less than $2,000 a year. And, you know, the, the uh, Western world, um, high-resource countries consume or um, account for about 64% of the world's income. Middle countries, about 33%, and poor countries, about 2%. And that is the manifestation of this very same uh, greed, hatred, and delusion that we are working with ourselves. It's the same system. So the second type of craving according to the Buddha, is the craving to be. So this is what Ajahn Suchito says about that. So the result of craving to be solid and ongoing, to be a being that has a past and a future, together with the current wish to, res to resolve the past and the future, are combined to establish each individual's present world as complex and, and unsteady. This is the line that I love. This thirst to be something keeps us reaching out for what isn't here. And so we lose the inner balance that allows us to discern a here and now fulfillment in ourselves. So um, in addition to the sense of um, craving to be, you know, one way you could think about it is in all the, is in all the identities that we hope to have. Um, you know, there's another sutta reference about this very deep sense of dissatisfaction that we all have. That is uh, one of the characteristics of the Second Noble Truth, that in addition to just greed and craving and wanting, there is also a deep sense of dissatisfaction. And this is what Analayo says about that, Bhikkhu Analayo. He says... And he's talking about a, a scriptural reference here. You know, the Buddha said this 2,500 years ago. The same discourse that introduces yet another image related to craving, um, that, that of one's second, one's ever-present companion, dissatisfaction. This image brings out the ever-present deep-seated feeling of dissatisfaction engendered by craving a wanting so ingrained in one's habitual experience of the world that it's almost taken for granted. In fact, according to another passage in the Majjhima Nikaya, tanha can be appropriated as a self. That is, craving is so well entrenched in experience that it has become part of one's sense of identity. This makes the removal of craving all the more difficult since to reach freedom from craving <clears throat> not only requires developing the insight that craving is bound up with dissatisfaction and frustration, but also requires giving up part of what is experienced as 
I, me, and mine. And I can get a sense of that. You know, a sense of, for example, in my job, you know, I've got, I make plenty of money in my job. I've got plenty of research grants. You know, there's so much going on there, but there's always this sense of, wow, if I could just do something a little bit different, I would be happy. Actually, there's, a, uh, there's actually a, a pseudo-reference for something called Maha Dukkha Khanda, you know, Dukkha about formations, specifically about jobs. And I know many of us are sitting in this hall tonight just rutching our hands on the cushion about jobs. This sutta is about livelihood. And um, it says, well, the sutta describes how taking central pleasure to be gratifying leads to a quest for obtaining them through earning a living, a quest that is is itself often um, beset with suffering and at times even danger. When in spite of all our efforts this isn't successful, the poor victim sorrows and grieves, laments and weeps and cries. And, you know, how many of us have had issues craving on our cushions about our jobs, about not having enough of a job, about having too much of a job, or feeling that our job makes us invisible, or feeling that our job makes us too visible? You know, the livelihood. And, um, you know, this, that, this, this sense of dissatisfaction, you know, you could check into every area of your life and probably come up with some. Think about, you know, your partnership status. Those of you, those of us who are single, you know, sometimes we wrench our hands and think, wow, why do we have to be single? Are we such losers that we can't find partners? (laughs) Have you ever had that thought? I mean, you look at people on planes and everybody has a wedding ring on. It's like, what's up with that? There is, there, you know, there is a way that this, uh, you know, particularly our capitalist system and a lot of our social institutions are geared towards couples, probably geared towards heterosexual couples. So, you know, let's definitely celebrate the fact that at least in my state we have gay marriage, but there's still a lot of work for us all to do. Uh, and then think about people who are married. How satisfied are people who are married? <laughs> I have a lot of friends who have partners, and, you know, it's a lot of dukkha there, too. (laughs) So it's, you know, I have, um, you know, I know of the suffering that can come. It's not my personal suffering, but the suffering that can come if you never had children. It can be a huge source of sorrow for people, like a missed opportunity or something that, you know, people wish that they had done. And I know people with kids who, that's a huge amount of dukkha for them. You know, just what it takes to be a parent and, you know, how that fits into their uh, greater, um, their greater ideas of, you know, who they want to be and who they are. So Sharon Salzberg says, Seeking is endless. It never comes to a state of rest. It never ceases. The difference between misery and happiness depends on what we do with our attention. 
Even Socrates says, I mean Socrates, he said, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. Those old Greeks. So that is the second type of suffering. I mean, the second type of craving, the craving to be, the craving for identity. And then the third type of craving is craving for not to be. And in some interpretations, not all of them, this could include just, you know, getting what you don't want, all the things uh, that we, you know, all the things that we are averse to. I mean, how, how many of us have just noticed our aging bodies on this retreat? You know, we've heard that from yogis. That, you know, the aging body is a source, can be, can be a source of an aversion to the untrained mind. So is there such a thing as a wholesome desire? You know, what are we doing here then? I mean, if it's all desire, can, you know, can our desire for freedom be something wholesome? And you'll be happy to know that the Buddha said yes. That there's something called chanda, which is a wholesome desire for well-being. So this is what Ajahn Suchito says about that. Some form of desire is essential in order to aspire to and persist in cultivating the path out of dukkha. Desire is an eagerness to offer. Desire as an eagerness to offer, to commit, to apply oneself to meditation is called chanda. It is a psychological yes. A choice, not a pathology. So here is a uh, desire that is not a reflex, but it's a choice. In fact, you could summarize Dhamma training as the transformation of tanha into chanda. So that's what we're doing. We are um, shifting all of our craving into a wholesome desire for liberation. It's a process whereby we guide volition, grab and hold on to the steering wheel, and travel with clarity towards our deeper well-being. So we're not trying to get rid of desire, which would take another kind of desire, wouldn't it? Instead, we are trying to transmute it, take it out of the shadow of gratification and need, and use its aspiration and vigor to bring us into light and clarity. And I was just reflecting on the wholesomeness of this environment. You know, the chanda, the... um, incredible karmic, the karmic um, implications of all of us being here. You know, um, you're listening to the Dharma, you're getting theoretical points towards awakening. You know, they say that in order to awaken, you have to hear the truth. And all of us are trying to give you the truth. And, you know, uh, and um, you're practicing, you're practicing hours and hours a day. You're engaging in, you know, a lot of renunciation. And on the cushion, you are realizing, you know, insights. You're realizing the truth of what the Buddha taught, the truth of reality. That's what he taught, he taught reality. So this whole experience is just like dipping yourself in really wholesome, concentrated, wholesome mental factors. And I'm happy for all of us. Jack Cornfield says this, in spiritual life, there is no room for compromise. Awakening is not negotiable. We cannot bargain to hold on to things that please us 
while relinquishing things that do not matter to us. A lukewarm yearning for awakening is not enough to sustain us through the difficulties involved in letting go. It is important to understand that anything that we can, that can be lost was never truly ours. Anything that we deeply cling to only imprisons us. So how is it that you know, this clinging happens? So in many of the longer discourses, the, long, uh, the long, longer canonical suttas, uh, they talk about dependent origination and the relationship between uh, dependent co-arising, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, and this um, aspect of clinging, craving, and all of its unwholesome and unskillful manifestations. And I would t- I'd like to talk a little bit about that right now. I can't believe I only have a half an hour left. <laughs> so dependent origination. So um, I read, I, I didn't know any of this. I was so happy to hear this. Do you know that the dependent origination is actually thought of as the most complex teaching in the entire Buddhist canon? It is the most complex teaching. In fact, in a famous passage, the Venerable Ananda comments on, you know, oh yeah, that dependent origination, it's all clear and it's easy. And the Buddha said to Ananda, and he's always saying this to Ananda, he says, don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Doesn't he, isn't he always saying that to Ananda? <laughs> Deep, he says, don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Deep is this dependent co-arising and deep its appearance. It's because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma that this generation is like a tangled ball of yarn, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond the cycles of the planes of deprivation, woe, and bad destination. So, you know, the Buddha said that this dependent origination, this is the reason why we're still cycling in samsara. So what the, um, you know, as a point of reflection on the cushion there, I'm just going to give you some ways to think about dependent origination, not conceptually. You know, I want to aim this at your intuitive awareness. And some uh, Buddhist teachers, actually Matthew Flickstein says that you have these ways of thinking about the Dharma theoretically, and what happens is if you go through an experience, the map will rise up. So you're not supposed to have the map and go looking for it. You're supposed to do the practice as diligently as you can, and then the map will rise up when needed to tell you where you're at. So um, I wanted to tell you some key points that I have learned about uh, dependent origination. So the commentaries, you know, not the Buddha suttas, talk about or depict or have a symbol of dependent co-arising as a wheel or as a circle of causes. And it was interesting for me to learn that the Buddhist canon never has that image as a wheel, uh, as something mechanical or deterministic. You know, it's kind of like an industrial revolution idea of how the world works. Uh, But uh, that's because dependent co-arising is non-linear. It's an interplay of both uh, linear and synchronistic, you know, in time and current principles. And any given event is influenced by two sets of conditions, those acting from the past and those acting from the present. 
so, and it's interesting because you think of dependent origination as, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and that's not true. All categories can be present at the same time. Um, for example, feeling or Vedana keeps reappearing at several different stages of the process. And ignorance, of course, which is the root cause of all of this, can uh, show up and actually does appear in the canon at several different stage, stages in the process. So the image in the sutta, rather than of a wheel, the image of uh, dependent core rising is, of, well, one of the many images is of water flowing over the land. So it's an image of lakes overflowing. And when the lakes overflow, it fills the rivers, which in turn fill the sea. And then in another sutta, it has the exact opposite image of the tides of the sea rising and swelling the rivers, which in turn swell the lakes. So, and this imagery captures something much more complex than just a, you know, linear A equals B equals C. And actually, you know, some theorists say that rather than a me mechanistic, you know, industrial revolution type of idea of how the world works, that this notion and these images actually are much more consistent with chaos theory. We knew the Buddha was on top of chaos theory. <laughs> you know, it's an intricate, interwoven pattern that describes complex, fluid systems containing multiple feedback loops. And then finally, probably the most important thing to know about dependent origination is that it is unstable, and it is stressful, and it is not self. Therefore, dependent, uh, dependent origination is anicca, is dukkha, is anatta. So I wanted to, um, I have this great little links of dependent origination that I want to read. I just thought this was very good. And, you know, remember when I'm reading these, they, they're not in linear, they're not in linear fashion, though. Of course, this page is linear, so that's the way they're printed. So we have, we have um, name and form, which is you know, one thing that I'm sure you're seeing. You're seeing the relationship between mental factors and physical factors, right? That the two are two separate things. There's the mental and then there's the physical. And that gives rise, because we have sense stores, because we have eyes and uh, you know, eyes um, in form, and we have eye objects in form, you know, around the room or anywhere we have things to look at. And we have eye consciousness. Um, and we have ears and we have sound and we have ear consciousness. And we have nose and smell and nose consciousness. Uh, tongues and taste and tongue consciousness. And body and touch and body consciousness. And then we have mind, mental, you know, um, mind as a um, sense store, and the objects of the mind are thoughts. So thoughts produce craving and clinging just like, or aversion just like any of these other factors. So how this works is we have name and form, identity arises based on past conditioning, and then we have the sense fields, we have these, you know, um, these... Um, Nama rupas and you know contact, and this produces sense contact. You know this is dependent origination. It produces sense contact, and 
um, that sense contact arises between the subject awareness and the object experience. And that conditions uh, feeling or sensation. That, you know, based on that, we have a pleasant, an unpleasant, or a neutral feeling. And based on that pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling, um, that evolves into an emotion. We have an emotion. And that emotion is either an attraction or an aversion or an indifference. And that um, emotion um, move into behaviors. Behaviors such as grasping, rejecting, or ignoring. And those behaviors become habits, a way of being and related. They become our personality. And those give rise to birth, either, you know, human birth or birth of the self in any moment, which give rise, rise to age, decline, and death with all of the associate struggle and suffering, which give rise to reactive formation, sankaras, which give rise to consciousness, which give rise to nama rupa, and it all goes around again. And, you know, we can see that just in, uh, we could see that on the cushion, but we can see that in our reactions as we're walking around, for example, in the, in the um, dining room for dinner. You know, I have heard a little bit about either Vipassana romances or Vipassana vendettas. And, you know, it'll be, there'll be two yogis and they'll see a third yogi. And one yogi will see this third yogi and think, oh, wow, they'll, they'll have a pleasant sensation because of all of that conditioning and all of that, um, you know, all of those um, dependent origination. They'll either have a, you know, they might have a very negative association with seeing that third yogi. But it's not really the yogi that's making that person feel good. It's all of those ways that, you know, the... Um, perception and the mental formations and the consciousness within the yogi that produces a, an attitude or feelings and thoughts um, to that third yogi. So let's say the second yogi doesn't like that yogi. So they just see that person and without saying anything, without anything, you know, all of those, um, those sanyas, uh, chittas and um, chittas sekas, all of those uh, mind and mental objects and consciousness, you know, some negative Vedana or unpleasant sensation will arise just from seeing that person and all of these thoughts about what it is that person's doing and why don't we don't like them and, you know, constructs them as an individual. And it really has nothing to do with that person. It has everything to do with, you know, that process that can actually be seen on the cushion. So, you know, that's what we're looking for. And we're looking for that non-conceptually. You probably, you know, our conceptual mind might be able to see that, but our intuitive awareness absolutely can see that. So that's what we're doing sitting on this cushion. So um, our very good friends, the Vipalesas, come in again right here too, because that's one of the, uh, the causes, actually that's one of the root causes of our clinging, is we don't see the true nature of objects. 
all of the things that we're clinging to, all of the things that we desire, all of the things that we don't like and push away, the reason that we have all of those mental formations about them is because we're not seeing their true nature. And that's another thing that we're doing on the cushion is we're trying to understand their true nature. So, um, so unexamined assumptions in the form of unvoiced thoughts or some of the um, underlying assumptions, incorrect assumptions that we have about any, any objects that we're encountering in our mind door on the cushion you know, or other um, sense doors, you know, as we're in the hall or as we're doing our walking meditation or as we're doing our daily activities. That's why it's so good to have continuous mindfulness. And not, you know, it doesn't have to be all um, tensed up, a very relaxed being in the body. As Joseph says, there is a body. So some of the unexamined assumptions, one of the outcomes of unwise attention are... This is the way it will be forever. You know, some experience that we're having that it is just going to be like this forever. Have any, have any of you had that thought? This is not seeing the truth of impermanence or anicca. But you can, you know, you can incline your mind to see that. See the beginning and endings of things. Another unexamined assumption is to be okay, this should be pleasant. You know, I have heard yogis say, well, you know, I, I'm expecting a certain thing to happen to have a successful retreat. And, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that is not the way to measure whether a retreat is successful or not. So we have to let that go. But that is, you know, that can be a unvoiced and, you know, unexamined assumption that we have. Look for those assumptions. And then the third, this is my very favorite unvoiced thoughts, are I am making this happen or this is happening to me, um, denying conditionality. You know, we might have a thought about, you know, a yogi doing something in the the, um, dining room or someplace else, or a thought about anything happening in life and, you know, have one or two sentences to construct the causality of it. You know, those are like stick figure theories about how things happen in the world. You know, our little ideas about why things happen. You know, uh, conditionality takes into account, you know, human history, all the way from human history and the, you know, evolution of um, societies down to the littlest bit of genetic information and individual people's lives and just, you know, a mirrored interconnection of all of that. You know, that's conditionality. That's how, you know, conditions arise and pass away. That's how the world unfolds. And we think that a few sentences in our mind is going to understand that. You know, to not understand that is to somehow think that we're making something happen or that it's happening specifically for our benefit or for our detriment. It's not happening like that. Another, um, another assumption that actually I just heard about when we were doing the teacher training and 
I and another one of the um, teacher trainees, actually it was um, Oren Nyanyako, he, he actually gave a short Dharma talk and he talked about um, the fourth vipalasa, the fourth distortion of perception, which I think is really important. And uh, he talked about it. It's um, seeing things that are beautiful, seeing things that are not beautiful as beautiful, and seeing things that are not beautiful as beautiful. So it's like seeing ugly things as beautiful and seeing beautiful things as ugly. Does that make sense? And I actually found the sutta reference for this today. I was so happy. So let me tell you how this works. This is very cool. So one of the ways, you know, uh, one of the ways that we think that we're, uh, our sense of self is that we have this sense of heapness. There's this, this thing in the suttas called heapness. We feel like we're one solid mass. But you're seeing on the cushion very much that we're really not one solid mass. You know, we're the skin is, you know, considered one organ. We have all these different organs in our body. You know, we have all these different elemental principles. We have hardness. We have liquid. We have air element. We have fire element. We have all of these different things going on. There's a lot going on in these bodies. And to notice that is a really excellent thing. So one of the ways that this um, misperception of beauty happens, of universal beauty, is that we'll see an object and we'll take one really great thing about that object and we'll universalize it to the whole object. Don't we do this? I have a friend right now who's just agonizing over a partner. <laughs> and she, you know she has seen one part of this person and universalized it to be the entire person. When her and I have checked in many times that that is not the truth of who, what this image is. You know, we do that all the time. I myself am struggling with the other one. You know, I have someone in my work environment that said one thing to me one time. And now every time I see that person, I just have all of those negative, um, you know, mental factors arising. I get, you know, um, ill will and fear and everything else that arises because of one thing that that person did one time. So I'm taking that one aspect of that person and blowing it up to be the universal person. And, you know, I'm working with that right now. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm doing the other one as well for something, you know. I mean, don't we do that when we get in, the, in our email, you know, our million different um, sale notices for J. Jill and <laughs> all the other places we like to uh, use our discretionary time. So there are some skillful thoughts regarding the dharmas and awareness practice. So I'm just going to give you a list of some skillful thoughts of ways to work with these um, with a craving and all of its different manifestations. And this is actually from a work done by Utejaniya, actually, and Steve Armstrong. So these are just some reflections to land on your intuitive belly. Awareness for developing understanding attends to one's own body and mind, not external reality, but the inner landscape of the body and the mind, the five aggregates. All that is observed within the body is the nature of the body, not my body. And we know that. We've been working with that. It's all just nature. 
Feeling Vedana is a verb rather than a noun. It's ever-changing and moving. Perception is the activity of comparing, is it an activity of comparing? To know something, you have to compare it to something else, right? It's a, it's a post-structuralist thing. Derrida was really big on that. And um, so it's an act of comparing that's neutral. You know, it really doesn't have a positive or a negative, but that perception turns into Vedana, you know, gives us a hit of pleasure or a hit of pain, and then all of the mental thoughts actually start arising. Intentions, okay, so this is another mental factor. Intentions are a functional activity of mind that bear the quality of the accompanying skillful or unskillful mental states. So we could have an intention to come to the Dharma Hall and listen to a Dharma talk for enlightenment. That's a very wholesome intention. And you could have, you know, an un- unwholesome intention. And then knowing chitta, the nature of the mind can be rec- recognized in many forms, including knowing, perceiving, awareness, and understanding wisdom. So this is some ways to investigate practice when you're maybe stuck a little thing. Stuck. Um, every moment something is being known. At every moment, you don't have to try to know something. You can see, there's seeing, and then there is um, attention. You know, you see, and then you direct your attention to something. Those are two different mental factors. And one of the most important things for us to look at, and we've talked about this many times, is what's the attitude of the mind? What's the assumption or relationship of the mind to the object that it that it's, has as its object in the moment? That becomes the next thing to look at, right? Whether, you know, there's aversion or uh, clinging arising or whether through mindfulness, through strong mindfulness, it's just seeing the object arise and pass away with equanimity, without identifying, without feeling like that's me. Another question just to pose to your intuitive awareness is, what narrative does this experience condition or the does it give rise to? You know, another thing to reflect on is that the objects arise in our mind because of that complex array of causes and conditions. I mean, how many of you are sitting there saying, I wish this would arise, I wish that would arise? None of it is arising based on any of us calling it up. It's all just happening all by itself. Unskillful mental states have unwise attention as a conditioning factor. So that is just like a teeny tiny bit of dust on what can be known and said from the Buddha Dharma, from the suttas about craving and clinging. So uh, to summarize, I'd like to say that We all crave sensual pleasures and identity. And our craving can go on forever. We crave for discomfort to end right now. And we crave for every sensation, every perception, every emotion, every feeling, and every belief 
that arises in us that is pleasant to stay and all of those things that are unpleasant to go away. That's what craving arises in us at in any moment. And we have to see the processes of the mind as prior to the objects they process and as different than the material world. It's all going inside it's all going on inside of dependent dependent origination, dependent co-arising inside of us. And that's where we should be looking. Or as Joseph says continually, liberation through non-clinging. So let's sit for a minute. 